All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome again. If you weren't here at the very beginning, my name is Nate, one of the elders here. So good to be back with you all after a little break. Some of it planned, some of it unplanned. So originally, when we um, decided to do this series, I was going to preach more than I ended up preaching. So this is the only one I get to do of this little four-part introduction into John, and that's okay. That's good. God is wise. So clearly he wanted other people to hear, or other people to speak to you and to you, you to hear from them. And yeah, just thank Jeff and Steve for filling in for me um, during some unplanned absence. But this is the final of kind of a bit of an introduction, a four-part introduction into the Gospel of John. We're going to be going sequentially through John starting next week. But really, it's an introduction into discipleship what it means to follow Jesus, to be transformed, to apprentice under the master of Jesus. And so we've broken down some of these fundamental aspects of discipleship, and they're here, repent, believe, and follow. And so this is the end of that series where we're going to be focusing on following. But as Jeff said last week, it's not really helpful to think of these as kind of like a one, two, three, four step process. Instead, it's kind of a one whole thing that has different aspects. And so we're looking at these different aspects, but really practically in our lives, they kind of happen simultaneously. You can't follow Jesus in the way that we're going to talk about without believing the gospel. You can't believe the gospel without repenting. You can't hear the words of your shepherd without following him. So it's part of one whole thing, and it's summarized as the Christian life. It's how God works with us. And it just so happens to be a great way to read your Bible, to think about these different aspects when you're interacting with the word. You're seeking to hear from the voice of your shepherd when you're reading the word. You're seeking to repent. You're seeking to believe and continue believing. And you're seeking to follow Jesus. And so this Follow Me series is a fundamental series of what it means to be a disciple and how to follow Jesus. And it's a great way. We're going to be referencing it over and over again as we look at the Gospel of John. And this last passage that we're going to be looking at comes from one of my favorite interactions in all of the Bible. And it's after Jesus had been crucified. It's, it, ha- it comes right after the text that we were in last week in John 20. Um, so Jesus is appearing again to his disciples. This is the third time he's appearing to them. And he sits down with them, has breakfast with them, and has some really powerful conversations. And so there's a lot in here for us to learn from, And there's um, just a really cool look at who Jesus is and his heart for us as we examine that. And so we're going to be in John chapter 21, and I'm going to read verses 1 all the way through 23. And then we're really going to be focusing on kind of the middle section in there. So this is in John 21 verses 1 through 23. Please open your Bibles if you have them and follow along with me. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, 
called the twin, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. And they went out and got, to, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the, on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in, came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far off from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it, and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after that, saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned aside and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had le leaned back against him during the supper when he had said, Lord, who is it that he is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad that among the brothers, that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the painstaking detail that you inspired these eyewitnesses to record. 
for our benefit, Lord, so that we might hear of these amazing things that Jesus did while he was on the earth, that we might benefit from them, that we might learn about ourselves, but more importantly, Lord, that we might learn about who you are. And as we learn about who you are, Lord, I ask that you would empower us to follow you to the depths of the earth all the days of our life, and that there would be nothing that would prevent us from being with you, from being your people, from being your sheep, and you, our good shepherd. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, we're going to see that true faith follows Jesus. True faith follows Jesus. And we're going to kind of break down some of the dynamics of what it looks like. How does following Jesus happen? What do we do? How does it come to be that we follow Jesus? And there's probably a lot that we could say here, but just in this text, there's kind of three different areas that I want to draw to your attention because they most certainly will factor in to your own efforts, your own desire, um, your own ability even to follow Jesus. And so the first one is that in order to follow Jesus, you have to be confronted by his compassion. If you're not confronted by his compassion, then you won't follow him. And then the second thing that'll happen as you are following Jesus or as you are considering, as you are kind of put into a decision point of following Jesus, you're going to be tempted by comparison. So confronted by compassion and then tempted by comparison. And then finally, at the end, you're going to see how God gives us courage for the journey. He gives us courage for the journey. And you see that through this interaction with Peter and John and Jesus and the disciples. So the context here is really important because this is a story that is kind of a summary of the entire gospel of John. It's the conclusion. It's like the second conclusion. If you've seen the Lord of the Rings movies, The Return of the King, it has like seven endings. This is one of those endings, but it's the final one. And so last week, you thought it was over, but now we have this. And so what this is doing is it's providing in story form, in narrative form, kind of the encapsulation of everything that John has been trying to convey. And he's really kind of using the last of the events that he recorded to encourage his audience to follow Jesus. And so it's hearkening back to numerous different stories, stories both contained in John, but also other events in the Gospels where Jesus is feeding the thousands with fish and bread. It's bringing to bear some of the metaphors of light and darkness that John has developed throughout the Gospel. The disciples go fishing at night and they catch nothing, they're blind. And then dawn breaks, Jesus speaks, and they see, and their nets are full. And it's, maybe most importantly, the restoration of Peter, the leader of the disciples, from a threefold failure, catastrophic failure, for one of the disciples to, within a short period of time, deny Jesus, just as Jesus predicted, we now get a threefold restoration. 
So there's a lot going on here in the context. There's also just the aspect of the different purpose with which Jesus appears to his people after his resurrection. If you remember, he first appears to Mary in the Gospel of John. And he calls Mary. And he says, Mary, why do you weep? She's overcome with despair that she's lost her Lord, that he died. He says, don't weep. Look at me. Don't let your sadness overwhelm you. And then he appears to Thomas, what you guys looked at last week, and he puts Thomas's hand in his wounds, and he says, Thomas, don't doubt. See me. Believe in me. And now he appears primarily to Peter. And he says, Peter, don't dwell in your guilt. Don't allow your shame to drive your life. I love you. You are forgiven. You are restored. And so the emotional weight of this passage is really this beautiful picture of the compassion of Jesus. And we see his compassion in all of those different aspects of him revealing himself. So Jesus is revealing himself very particularly to different people along this period of time to bind them up, to heal them, to restore them, to empower them. So his compassion is expressed even in just how he chooses to reveal himself, how he chooses to manifest all the fullness of who he is to us and to these people. And in this passage specifically, he does it very gently. He does it from the shore. If you, remind, if you remember other periods where the disciples are in a boat, sometimes Jesus walks on the water. Sometimes he just appears in the boat. And this time, he's like, they've been through enough. <laughs> I'm just going to call out to them and very gently reveal myself to them. They all know that it's him. They don't even see him, but they know from the clues that he gives them. So how he reveals himself is just this gentle, compassionate revelation. And then Jesus also provides guidance and sustenance. So even in their fishing activity, Jesus shows that he is the Lord, that he is the maker of the fish and the waters and the boat and the fishers. And there's so much richness here. It's really hard to know exactly what John wants us to focus on. And he probably is just trying to overwhelm us with the richness of this interaction. Because you can think of Jesus's original call to the disciples. When he calls them, he says, I will make you fishers of men. And he intentionally called fishers away from their primary vocation and to a life of evangelism, a life of proclaiming the good news, a life of following Jesus. And so now that they've gone back there, we're, we're not, it's not really clear. Why are they fishing? Are they fishing because they have kind of given up? Is Peter in despair because he thinks that he's lost his place as a disciple and his position as a leader of this mission? Or are they fishing because they just need something to eat and they're fishermen and so they fish? 
We don't really know. But it's probably all a little bit true. All of it probably factored in. So he provides the guidance on, put your net over here. And he provides the fish to fill their net. And he provides the strength of the net. And again, you can think of all of this rich symbolism that's weaving into this story where these disciples are fishers of men. And there's so much abundance in obeying Jesus that they, in their own strength, couldn't even catch the fish. And once they had them caught, they couldn't bring them back to the shore. It was too much. And yet he provides a net that won't be broken. He provides for the abundance that he gives. And then he provides the sustenance at this breakfast. He has the fire ready and waiting. The fish that they just caught, he asks that they come and eat. They just spent the whole night in a boat. And so they're hungry and he feeds them. He sits with them. And of course, there's reference here to the Lord's Supper. The bread being taken and broken and distributed by Jesus. And there's all of the richness of how God has fed his people with bread throughout the history of Israel, the history of the church. And so you see this compassion through Jesus providing guidance and sustenance. And then finally you see it in that Jesus ultimately and most powerfully restores guilty sinners. Peter had denied Jesus three times publicly with very little pressure. It didn't take much. He denied him in a short period of time, and he denied him almost like right at the buzzer. It was a buzzer beater of a denial. The rooster crowed almost instantly. If he had just held out for a little bit longer, maybe he wouldn't have denied him, but he couldn't. The third time, this powerful disciple gave in to a little servant girl and denied him. Proving that he was a liar, that he was arrogant, and that he was a bit of a fraud. He had proclaimed to Jesus in the presence of the other disciples, Lord, I will go with you no matter where you go, even to the grave I will follow you. And Lord, I love you. Even if all of these other disciples don't follow you, I will follow you. And then the pressure of a little servant girl proves that Peter was a liar. And so when Jesus sits down with Peter and very slowly and patiently asks him, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter's just totally broken by it because he knows exactly what he's talking about. He knows what Jesus is doing. And he's humiliated because he's publicly outed. It's as big a failure as you could imagine. And yet Jesus strengthens him. Says, yes, Peter, I know that you love me. And I have given that love to you. And I am molding it and pressing it deep into your soul in this very conversation so that you will follow me, so that you feed my sheep, so that you tend my flock, because that's still what you are to do. You haven't 
lost anything because I am restoring you. And so for us, as we are in a modern world, as we are really far away from this fire and this conversation, it's the same question. Discipleship will ask you this very same question. Do you love Jesus? Do you love him? And if you slow down with that question just for a little bit, you'll call to mind all of the plethora of evidence that shows you, yeah, you don't love him. You've failed him. You've denied him. You've acted out of fear and not faith. You've sinned. And this is why Peter is really useful here, because we see him explicitly abandoning Jesus at Jesus's most dire time of need. Jesus most needed his disciples when he was put on the cross. He most needed their friendship, their encouragement, their presence. And yet Peter abandoned him. And so the power of that for us is that this is a glimpse. It's a very powerful and real picture of what sin actually is. It's abandoning the Lord. It's saying, God, you don't really know what's best. I am a better God than you. I know what I actually need. I know what will make me happy. And so it's an abandoning of Jesus. And so as we are faced with that question, we need to, with Peter, come to the end of ourselves And what he says is ultimately, Lord, you know all things. Me saying that I love you actually doesn't matter. The words of it, you know the state of my heart. And he entrusts Jesus with them. He said, Lord, yes, I love you. It might be small, fragile, imperfect love, but I love you. And Jesus receives that and binds it up. And tells him to follow. And we need to be filled with the compassion that Jesus brings because our hearts are frail and we look for ways to abort living a life that follows Christ. And one of the most, temp- one of the most p- powerful temptations that we're going to face in a life in seeking to follow Christ is this temptation of comparison. And that's what Peter just beautifully illustrates for us. He says, okay, Jesus, I'll follow you. And then Jesus tells him what that means. (laughs) He says, okay, Peter, so as you tend my sheep, because you tend my sheep, because you follow me, because you obey me, here's what's going to happen. You used to do what you wanted to do, But as you follow me, you're going to follow me to your own death. You're going to follow me to a death that was like mine. He gives him this parable that as a young man, you would dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And he's referring to Peter's death, and we have good reason to believe that he was also crucified. 
that because he was preaching the gospel, because he was spreading the faith throughout Rome, that Rome eventually had enough, and they crucified him too. And so you can understand why Peter would get a little bit antsy about this. Like he's being singled out by Jesus in this. He's walking along and he turns around and he's like, John's back here. Maybe I can get some help. He's like, what about him? And Jesus just very adeptly shows us that when we look at other people's lives, we see very imperfectly. And so when we are comparing ourselves to other people, when we are comparing our walk, our calling, our gifts, our circumstances with the circumstances of another, that we see just incredibly imperfectly. We think, oh, what I am being asked to do is harder than what John's being asked to do. So Jesus, like, I think this is unfair. You better get John to do this too. And Jesus just focuses it back on him. He says, no, no, no. You follow me. Don't worry about John. And so the gaze of Peter goes from looking at John back to looking at Jesus. Because when we look at other people's lives, when we start doing comparison, when we start thinking, oh, that person has more money than I do, so I don't have to be as generous, or that person has better health than I do, so I don't have to do as much. Or that person has fill in the blank. Anytime you start comparing yourselves, your gaze is turning away from Jesus. And what happens is you're actually going to be tempted to resist the call of Jesus on your life. And so this is a real and powerful temptation in our lives. Following Jesus means keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus. Trusting his perfect will for your lives. And it's incredibly costly. So you will try and abort. You will try to distract yourself. It's going to happen. It happened for Peter later. He didn't all of a sudden just perfectly follow. I mean, we were just in Galatians where we read another public failure of Peter, where he was worried about what other people thought about him. He was worried that the Jews were going to not think highly of him anymore because he was eating with Gentiles, and so he confuses the gospel. And so he wasn't done failing. It's costly to follow Jesus, but he is faithful. He gives us what we need. So as we shift our gaze off of other people, in comparison, we place it back on Jesus. And as we look to him in times of need, in times of temptation, in times of fear, we actually receive courage for our journey along the way. And this is, this is the amazing thing about this interaction is that this isn't just a conversation. It's filled with power. It's filled with power that fills Peter and empowers him to live the life that he was called to. It empowers him to follow Jesus. And so as we think about these characters involved, we see how 
Jesus gives Peter courage. We see how Jesus gives John courage, and we'll see how Jesus gives us courage as well. So first, Peter. Peter being told, you are going to die. He had a real option to just keep fishing. It was a real choice. Jesus didn't force him to go and preach the gospel. He invited him, follow me, do this. Out of your love for me, respond. And then he shows Peter the cost. What that costs you is your life. So for us, we have to know that. That's the universal cost of following Jesus. It's your life. That's the price of grace. Grace is not cheap. It's not free. It comes with a price, and the price is your life. And if that makes you uneasy, if that makes you a little bit nervous, just think about it in this way. The gospel that you believe cost Jesus his life. Jesus is perfect. He's the son of God. He had no stain or blemish. The value of his life was infinite and immense. And yet it was the will of God to give him over for you. Why on earth would God do that? Because God knew the redemption that would come from a life given and a life raised from the dead. He knew the fruit of redemption would so far surpass and outweigh the cost of the life that it's not worth comparing in the words of Paul. And so we need to remind ourselves that when we give our life, when we offer our lives to Christ, and that means every area of your life relinquishing control, trusting the results to God, we're reminded of the God that we are trusting when we think about the cross, when we think about the resurrection. And so I don't know about you, but I, in this parable, this causes me some anxiety. To think about this, to think of put, putting my place, myself in this place of saying, okay, your faith is going to result in your death. Is it worth it? I don't want to do that. I don't want to be carried around. I don't want to be crucified. But what Jesus says to Peter and John's commentary on it is that he's showing how God is going to bring glory from Peter's death. And so if you think about it, you're going to die. What better way to die than in obedience to Jesus, following him to your death? How much better is that, 
knowing that you are obeying and following and offering yourself as an offering of thanks to the one who gave his life for you, then for you to come to the end of your life and realize that you've been following your own heart. You've been following your own will. Your life is lived as a sacrifice to you. And that's coming to an end. It's empty. You've exchanged eternal life for emptiness, for something that can't stand the trial. And so he gives Peter this courage by saying, you and your life and your death, they will bring me glory. And that's a work that I am going to do. And in a similar way, he encourages John. Because John has just a little bit of a um, description of what his life is going to be like in this. And it's one of abiding and testifying and discipling. John is going to abide. He's going to have a long life. But it was equally not easy. And he didn't know this at the time. But Jesus intended that John and his call would be used to endure the persecution of the, of the church, would be used to endure divisions within the church. And he would have long years, but would end up exiled, alone, abandoned. And so John needed this courage too. And we need this courage. Because there's a real cost to following Jesus here in the D.C. area. And honestly, I think as we consider the holistic call that this text has on our lives, there's no area where we can say, I don't actually need to follow Jesus there. It's just Sundays, or it's just with my family, but not at work, or just at work and not my family, or just in this relationship and not that relationship. We lay it all down and say, life and death, we are called to follow Christ, and we need courage because there is real temptation, and it's really hard at times. And I don't know where specifically that is for you, where specifically you have that anxiety of knowing Jesus is calling me to obey. Jesus is calling me to follow. He's calling me to believe. He's testing my faith by giving me an opportunity to trust him. And I just think that for us, we're a little bit complacent. We just turn down the volume on that, those parts of Scripture, on those voices that speak truth to us. We just turn down the volume until they're drowned out. And we're really analytic. And so we will tend and are prone to kind of overanalyzing things. And thinking, yeah, like, I, I, I know that the Bible says this, but that's, you know, from this perspective, that's, that's, that doesn't really make sense. And we want to understand it before we will actually follow. We want to understand God's plan for our lives perfectly, without any questions, before we step out. But we worship an infinite God with infinitely good plans for our lives that we often don't understand. 
And so for us, through the course of going through the Gospel of John, of walking along with Jesus during his earthly ministry, this is going to be a theme where Jesus calls us to follow him in real ways, in ways that are going to stretch us and make us uncomfortable, in ways that are going to be hard and costly. And I hope that as we see Jesus, we will trust him more, that we'll be willing to take steps of faith that are seeking understanding instead of reserving faith and steps of obedience until we perfectly understand. Because how this dynamic works, at least for John and for Peter and also for us, is that as you believe, as you repent, as you hear, as you follow, there's this exponential growth of faith, of godliness, that will continue to lead you and to show you the riches of the one who calls you. And that's what the Gospel of John is really good for, is giving us this intimate and beautiful look at Jesus. John is the disciple whom Jesus loves. He's the one who laid his hand or his head on Jesus' chest at the Lord's Supper. He's the one who is with Jesus in all of these intimate ways. He's the one who abided for a long time until he died. And he shows the personality of Jesus, who Jesus is in very specific ways, because he wants us to follow him. He wants us to know our shepherd and to follow our shepherd. And so that's what we're going to be spending our time in for I don't know how long, a long time. It's going to be a while. We're going to slow down. We're going to soak in who Jesus is and how he's calling us to follow him with our entire lives. And I'm certain of this, that as we do that, we're not going to be disappointed. As we follow Jesus, as we understand the cost of obeying him in all these areas of our lives, that there's great reward that we will learn experientially, not just head knowledge, but experientially learn that all of the things that we fill our lives with, that our desires go out to, all of the things of this earth that we are distracted by, that we turn up the volume on, all flesh, it's like grass. And all people are like flowers. And the grass of this earth withers, and the flowers of this earth fade. But the word of God stands forever, and we can follow him. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for this story. God, we are struck this morning by that haunting question. Do we love your son? And so, Lord, I ask that you would give us encouragement, that you would fan the flames of our hearts into a full-throated love of you, that we would live a life that responds to you, 
that seeks your will, that seeks to follow you, a life of love. Lord, show us your will for our lives so that we can follow you as you would have us. And God, I ask that for all of us who are struggling with that, who are in the midst of trying to discern what your will is, Lord, that you would put us into your word, that you would give us clarity, that you would give us ears to hear the voices that you've surrounded, surrounded us with, our brothers and sisters who love us. Lord, and that your spirit would be upon us so that we might know where you are calling us, where you are leading us. And Lord, for us this morning who are terrified of the idea of a God who asks us to give our lives in his service. Lord, I ask that you would give us encouragement and trust that you only ask that of us because it's what we were made for. And that as we obey you, you have a reward in store for us that far surpasses even our ability to imagine. And Lord, we know that that reward is a dwelling with you, being your people, a fullness of seeing you face to face, of you putting your glory upon us. And so God, I ask that we would trust that and that we would be so preoccupied with that, that the offering of our lives, the offering of every decision to you becomes a, a great joy and not a dread. And that you would give us, Lord, grace along the way, that you would give us courage for our journey. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.